Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a pretty interesting episode for today, so I'm going to jump right into it. Today, the case that we're going to talk about is Evelyn Nesbitt. Florence Evelyn Nesbitt was born on Christmas Day in 1884, although some sources say it may have been as late as 1885, but she was born in Natrona, Pennsylvania, which was a little bit outside of Pittsburgh. Now, for reference, this period of time was post-Civil War, and the country had experienced an increase in the availability of pornographic materials. Now, keep in mind that even burying an ankle during this time period was considered pretty scandalous, and the Comstock laws were enacted in 1873 to combat this, and it criminalized sending anything obscene in the mail, including contraceptives, sex toys, personal letters, or any other content or information that could be considered pornographic or obscene. It was also illegal to sell, lend, or give away such materials. This also effectively dealt with the hot-button issues of birth control and abortion that were popping up at that time. Artists of the day, though, found ways to skirt these laws by using mythology and saying that women were dressed as mythological beings and they were for the study of art, not pornography. Now back to Florence, or Evelyn, as she was called by friends and family. It was reported when she was born that the local paper said she was the most beautiful baby that had ever been born in the county. Evelyn's father, Winfield Scott Nesbitt, was an attorney and her mother, Evelyn Florence, was a homemaker. It's interesting that her mother named her first daughter Florence Evelyn. In any case, Evelyn was reportedly very close with her father. He created a small library for her and encouraged her curiosity and self-confidence. In addition to reading, Evelyn took up music and dance lessons, and her family moved to Pittsburgh in 1893, and her parents had another child, a younger brother named Howard. Everything was good until Winfield died suddenly at the age of 40. Evelyn was about 10 years old at the time, and it was reported that the Nesbitt family was left penniless upon the death of Mr. Nesbitt. As a consequence, they lost their house and had most of their possessions of value auctioned off to pay off debts. When Evelyn's mother failed to find work as a dressmaker, the family lived off the charity of friends and relatives, sharing a single room in various boarding houses as they struggled to survive. The younger Nesbitt, Howard, was eventually sent away to live with friends and relatives, and at one point Evelyn's mother obtained the funds to open a boarding house as a source of income. Evelyn was about 12 at the time and sometimes collected the rent from the boarders. It was said that because she was so pretty, her mother thought that it might be easier for her to obtain the rent from these boarders. Eventually, though, the venture failed, as Evelyn's mother wasn't very good at conducting business. The Nesbitt family then ended up moving again, this time to Pennsylvania in 1898, so Evelyn's mother could work as a seamstress. While their mother worked, Evelyn and Howard were sent away to relatives, then to a friend of the family for care. Mrs. Nesbitt eventually got alternate work in a department store and sent for her children, who were age 14 and 12 at the time. The two young children also became employees of the same store their mother worked at, and they often worked 12-hour days, six days a week. 
Now keep in mind that child labor laws did not exist at that time. The most sweeping laws related to kids working were not passed until 1938. Eventually, Evelyn was noticed as she worked behind the counter by an artist who convinced her mother to let her pose. Her mother did so somewhat unwillingly, but finally agreed after verifying that the artist was a woman. So young Evelyn then sat for the artist for about five hours and earned $1, which is around 30 bucks in today's money. This led to Evelyn posing for other artists and not long after the family moved to New York, again so Evelyn's mother could seek work as a seamstress, but this was also unsuccessful and she had difficulty finding work. Even so, she sent for her children to join her and life was rough for a bit as the family of three lived in a single room again. Eventually, though, everything changed, and Evelyn's mother used letters of introduction from Philadelphia artists to get Evelyn's foot in the door of the New York modeling world. During this time, Evelyn's mother managed her daughter's burgeoning career, and effectively, though, it seemed that she didn't really have business skills or the ability to protect her daughter. And even though Mrs. Nesbitt claims she never let her daughter pose nude, paintings and art from 1901 show the young girl partially nude or scantily clad in several pieces. Even so, Evelyn quickly became the it girl of the time. She got jobs modeling for toothpaste ads, furs, chocolates, creams, and everything in between. She often made twice as much as the other models, and she was soon cast in a play on Broadway, which was wildly popular. This play allowed a man by the name of Stanford White to take notice of young Evelyn Nesbitt. Reportedly, he'd seen the play dozens of times just to catch a glimpse of Evelyn in all of her splendor. Stanford White was an architect who was part of the New York upper crust. He designed mansions for the Vanderbilt family, the Tiffany's, and he created the design for the original Madison Square Garden. People also knew Stanford for his wild partying and extreme events. Redheaded benefactor was said to be very intense and powerful, a large man in both stature and personality. Keep in mind, this was the beginning of what was considered the Gilded Age. This was the era from about 1877 to 1900, a period of rapid economic growth which impacted the northern and western states most significantly. As wages jumped, skilled workers were needed, and huge projects were designed and built. There was also a mass influx of European immigrants which flooded the country to provide the unskilled labor for these massive projects. Industrialization was the word of the day, and railroads allowed industry growth as never before. Now, back to Evelyn and her story. She was performing at the hottest Broadway play at the time when the married Stanford White convinced Evelyn through some of the other chorus girls to come to a fancy luncheon at one of his apartments. It was above a toy shop, FAO Schwartz at the time, and it was said that she stopped and wanted to look at some of the toys in the shop, but was persuaded to go through a secret entrance where she was pulled in and taken into a world of opulence unlike anything she'd ever seen before. So here's this 16-year-old girl who takes an immediate dislike to Stanford White. She was repulsed by how old he seemed, and he looks probably pretty creepy to her as a young girl when he was 48 years old. So 
Stanford convinced Evelyn to go into another part of the apartment where a gorgeous red velvet swing was waiting. This was their first real interaction together, and Evelyn was convinced to ride the swing in this creepy dude's richy rich apartment. Evidently, there was some sort of an umbrella or parasol or something, and he persuaded her to swing as high as she could, to hit the parasol, to kick it, something of that nature. Can you imagine how big this apartment would be to have a full swing where she could swing as high as she wanted to and kick a parasol? The ceilings had to have been pretty darn high. But after that, Stanford White took charge of Evelyn, paying to get her teeth fixed as well as moving her and her mother into a nice new apartment and paying for her brother Howard to go away to school. He showered Evelyn with gifts, bought her books, encouraged her to take musical lessons, and arranged for her to model for some of the best artists of the day. In the meantime, though, Stanford White was working overtime to gain the trust of Evelyn's mother, and he encouraged her to make a visit to Philadelphia to visit her friends who she had not seen in quite some time. Evelyn, who was modeling in the daytime and acting on Broadway in the evening, was left in the care of Stanford White when her mother was eventually convinced to go make that visit back to Philadelphia. Stanford then told Evelyn he was throwing a party, and when she showed up, there was no one else there. He gave her a gift and then started giving her champagne until she was obviously intoxicated. He then took her into a different secret room with a bed where he raped her. Evelyn woke up nude next to Stanford White. Reportedly, he told her she was his then, Luckily, she had no memory of this horrific act, but she was nonetheless horrified. But he convinced her not to say anything or report the rape. It was also very challenging at that time to prosecute a rape if the victim could not prove that they fought back. That means if they were intoxicated or passed out or something of that nature, they could not really prove that they fought back. Evelyn knew she was trapped. What made what... Even worse, Stanford was a powerful member of New York society, and Evelyn was not. She had no choice in the matter but to keep her mouth shut and allow Stanford White to do what he wanted. In the meantime, he was lavish with gifts, filling his apartment with flowers for Evelyn's 17th birthday, giving her extravagant jewelry and lavish furs, as well as other pricey presents. At first, Evelyn was excited by the attention and the expensive gifts. Here she was, this young girl who lived on the edge of poverty, but was now seeing more wealth displayed than most people would ever experience. During this time, Evelyn continued to perform on Broadway, and over time, the newness wore off, and she eventually discovered that Stanford was having affairs with other young women, and he was recording all of it in a little black book. It was around this time that Evelyn started to see a young man by the name of John Barrymore. He became a fixture at Evelyn's performances. He was the brother of an actress who was around 21 years old and closer in age to Evelyn. This young man was charming, witty, and fun-loving. He was trying to be an illustrator and a cartoonist, but he did not have a very significant salary and was said to be irresponsible with his family's money. Eventually, after he proposed marriage, Evelyn turned him down, and the two parted ways when Evelyn went away to boarding school. 
Presumably, both her mother and Stanford White found out about this affair with John Barrymore and wanted to end it, so they pulled Evelyn away. But the fact was, Barrymore wasn't the only relationship in Evelyn's life at the time. There were several others vying for her attention. None of them had significant success until Harry Kendall Thaw hit the scene. He was the wealthy son of a railroad baron out of Pittsburgh and was said to be reckless, self-indulgent, and even mentally unstable. Like Stanford White before him, Thaw attended Evelyn's Broadway performances dozens of times under a false name before finally introducing himself. He was also said to dislike Stanford White tremendously because of his reputation for hitting on young women and being sort of this womanizer figure. He also believed that Stanford was the reason behind his rejection in certain New York clubs and social circles. In reality, he was a little odd and had been kicked out of numerous schools for his bizarre behavior and showy mannerisms. Nonetheless, he was known to travel the world, get into fights, and live lavishly off his allowance, which is thought to have been around $2 million a month in today's money. He was spoiled and very unstable, and after luring young women to his apartment, he tried to teach them moral lessons as he beat them up. His mother often paid these women off so they wouldn't press charges or get young Harry into legal trouble. Evelyn was used to being pursued, though, by wealthy men from all over the world, and she was not impressed by Harry. She sent back all of his gifts and rejected his proposals of marriage. The turning point appears to have occurred when Evelyn needed some sort of an emergency procedure. It was reported to be acute appendicitis. However, many who knew Evelyn thought perhaps she'd gotten pregnant with John Barrymore and needed an abortion. But Stanford White just happened to be unavailable when Evelyn's mother tried to reach her benefactor. So she contacted Harry Thaw, who sprang into action and assured that Evelyn had not only the best medical care, but a European trip to help with her recovery. Evelyn's mother and Harry set off on this recuperative tour, but Evelyn and her mother could not manage to get along, and Mrs. Nesbitt ended up returning to America without her daughter. Harry and Evelyn were then alone in Paris, and the entire time he was professing his love and begging her to marry him. Eventually, he cornered her, and she revealed the truth about Stanford White and his rape of her several years earlier. Evidently, the unstable Harry was appalled and started crying, begging for more details. Evelyn, still somewhat naive at the time, was touched, though, by his sensitivity and sympathy. The two continued traveling, although Thaw made various comments about his dislike of Stanford and annoyance that he deflowered the beautiful young Evelyn. In Germany, Thaw cornered Evelyn in her room, beating her up and sexually assaulting her. Much like he'd done with countless other young women, he believed he was beating her as some sort of a penance for her sinful behavior. The following day, Thaw acted as if nothing had happened, another hallmark sign of mental illness, and Evelyn was taken to see a doctor who ignored the obvious signs of Thaw's assault. Eventually, they ended up running into one of Stanford White's friends, and Evelyn was able to escape from Harry Thaw and his bizarre behavior. 
Things were not tremendously better in America. Evelyn was at a crossroads. Her mother was not speaking to her and had remarried, becoming even more estranged. And Evelyn was beginning to realize that Stanford White had never seen her for anything but a sexual object that he could pursue and possess to discard when he found the next young, promising virgin to chase. In the meantime, Harry Thaw was still pursuing Evelyn, sending her flowers, letters, gifts, and anything else he thought might convince her to forgive him. He promised he would behave and that he would live like a monk if he needed to. Two years of this eventually wore Evelyn down and she consented to marry Harry. April 5th, 1905, Evelyn and Harry got married. It's said that she wore a black dress on the occasion, which is not a good harbinger of marital success, right? The honeymoon period was short-lived though and Harry quickly started in on Evelyn about her past relationships with Stanford White. She was miserable, forced to live with Harry and his stern mother in the Thaw family home. She was isolated with nothing but strict Presbyterians who did not act as she had imagined they would. Instead of travel and entertainment, Harry and his mother were pious and strict. To make matters worse, the obviously mentally unstable Harry started carrying a gun and crusading to expose Stanford White for all of his perverse behavior. He was corresponding with people to get Stanford arrested. He had Stanford White followed constantly and was collecting evidence against Evelyn's former benefactor. Stanford, aware of Thaw's vendetta, also began collecting evidence against his enemy. Interestingly enough, Thaw was no more innocent than the man he claimed had ruined his wife. He had also sexually assaulted Evelyn, and she was a minor during her forced interaction with him as well. This effectively created a standoff between the two men, who both realized they could get jail time if they were exposed by the other. Thaw was undoubtedly obsessed with Stanford White, doing crazy things like having her teeth that Stanford had paid to fix, unfixed, and he made her promise to report any time Stanford crossed her path. To her great surprise, one year into their marriage, Harry announced he and Evelyn were going to take a trip to Europe. They would spend one night in New York and depart by boat the following day. They left Pittsburgh at the end of June in 1906 and arrived in New York June 25th. They then went to the theater at Madison Square Garden. Thaw reportedly wore a black overcoat over his tuxedo and refused to remove it, even though it was June in New York. The show started and Stanford wasn't in his usual seat. According to reports, he'd been at a restaurant that Evelyn and her husband were previously at, and Evelyn was scared that some sort of confrontation was coming. She was relieved when Stanford hadn't arrived, but then he showed up at around 11 p.m. as the show was wrapping up. Seeing his rival, Thaw stood up and approached several times, failing to actually speak. He had been drinking heavily and acting odd all evening. During the finale, Thaw pulled out a gun and shot Stanford White in the head and back three times. Stanford White died instantly. 900 people witnessed the shooting and some thought it was part of the show. Confused, the orchestra kept playing as Thaw proclaimed he'd done this because Stanford White had ruined his wife. 
Fortunately, someone in the audience stepped forward and took Harry's gun, and Harry was taken to the police station. He was said to have been smiling at that time, convinced that he'd gotten revenge for Evelyn and had saved the virtue of countless young women. Many people were not surprised that White had been killed because of his reputation with young women, but in the meantime, Harry was arrested and held without bail. The case was front page news and the media covered this in tremendous detail for almost two years, sensationalizing it, dramatizing it, and often fictionalizing the facts. Stories were released on a regular basis with titillating storylines and very little factual basis. Harry's defense team was convinced that insanity was the best path forward, but his family believed this was shameful and would not cooperate. They compromised, though, and settled on a plea that is not common in the legal system. Back then, they called it Dementia Americana, which was a sort of temporary insanity, a single occurrence by someone who was so disturbed that they had to honorably avenge their wife. During this time, Thaw's family forced Evelyn to testify on Harry's behalf, and they held all the control because they had the money and Evelyn had no way to support herself. She was at their mercy, and when it came time to testify, they forced her to reveal the very intimate details of Stanford's treatment of her during their relationship. The prosecution was brutal, and the transcripts were actually published sending society into a titter because of its scandalous nature. All of the details of Evelyn's salacious actions, the nude activities on the swing, the photo shoots, the sex, all of it in its wild descriptions were revealed to the public and said to have caused poor Harry to have his moment of temporary insanity. His family also paid multiple psychologists to support this claim, stating that it was a one-time thing the defense's strategy worked and the jury could not decide. They came out as a hung jury in the first trial. Now, the second trial happened a year later, starting the whole salacious thing all over again. But this time, the public was not as shocked as they had been the first time around, and some additional facts had been disclosed. And although Harry's team had painted a picture of an innocent Evelyn being rescued from the evil Stanford White by her knight in shining armor, the second trial had more details to contradict the original narrative. And despite Harry's mother's insistence that she did not want her son stigmatized by the stamp of mental illness, his defense team convinced her it was the only way to save her son from the death penalty. He pleaded insanity and was acquitted. He was then sent to a mental institution for treatment in upstate New York. Immediately though, Harry and his mother had Evelyn followed and monitored her every move. It was also said that despite their efforts to pay for her testimony, the Thaw family cut her off after the second trial. And although Harry had been afforded special privileges in the insane asylum because of his money, he was lobbying hard to get out. Eventually cut off from receiving money to survive, Evelyn started testifying against her husband in his sanity trials, saying that he was dangerous. Interestingly enough, though, Evelyn became pregnant and gave birth to Russell William Thaw in 1910. She insisted that her son had been conceived during a conjugal visit with her husband. Thaw denied this claim until the day he died. He is also said to have escaped the mental institution in 1913 and taken off for Canada. 
He was sent back, though, and eventually released the same year as he filed for divorce from Evelyn in 1915. It was also said that Thaw was arrested again in 1917 for kidnapping and whipping a young boy. He was again sent to an insane asylum and released again after seven years. It was said that he continued to be accused of similar behavior for the rest of his life. Unable to do anything else to support herself, Evelyn ended up going back into performing, acting in vaudeville shows and movies. She eventually married one of her co-stars, a man by the name of Jack Clifford. However, Clifford could not deal with Evelyn's past, and the two ended up splitting up in 1918. Evelyn tried various other endeavors, including restaurants, clubs, and even burlesque. Eventually, though, she moved to California to be with her son, and her life story became a movie in 1955. She consulted on the film, and it was called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing. Nesbitt is said to have suffered a stroke in 1956 and finally died in a nursing home in Santa Monica, California at the age of 82. Now, this case is so interesting. It's largely considered one of the first modern and most exciting crimes of the 20th century. Such a fascinating case and one with so many twists and turns, mental illness, rape, poverty, extreme wealth, theater, fame, society's rapid growth in the Gilded Age, and so many other things. It's also so strange to look back at the women in society at that time period and imagine how different things might be if the circumstances had occurred today. In any case, we are going to go ahead and wrap this episode up for the day. We have placed all of the sources for today's episode into the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the podcast at gmail.com. And please join us again next time when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!